0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Grace Ong Yan to talk about her book, Building Brands, Corporation, and Modern Architecture. Dr. Grace Ong Yan is Assistant Professor at Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, Thank you very much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Um, Yes. So I am an architect and an architectural historian. Um, So I kind of have two parts of my career, um, that of an architect and designer, sort of previously, and I've kind of moved into academia, um, now being a historian, theorist, writer, and educator.
0: Very interesting. And so diving right into kind of the history aspect of it, and so the book very clearly focuses on a very specific time period, and there's obviously a reason for it, and could you elaborate for us what that time period is and why it's so significant in what you're trying to show us?
1: Sure. Uh, So that's a great question about why modern architecture. Um, And in particular, you know, I'm looking at corporate modernism so the modern buildings that were designed for um, the headquarters of these corporations at in the 20th century. Um, So I guess, so I was looking at a history of architectural branding and looking to the 20th century. um, It was just uh, really a natural choice in terms of modern design being so striking um, and having it's the qualities of, uh, of bringing you know good design through mass production to all of society, and that that ethos of modernism really seemed like the right um, historical period to study. Um, and also the the fact that corporate modernism does get a bad reputation of being like rational slabs blocks, you know, casting shadows all over the city and is kind of imposing buildings, um, and that sort of blank, Uh, facade of a glass curtain wall, right? These aloof expressions. Um, And I felt like bringing branding, this new lens of branding to it, um, in some ways humanizes corporate modernism and sort of makes it, yeah, allows us to see it in a way that really addresses, that really communicates with the broad public in a way that, you know, you don't traditionally think of modern architecture as doing
0: Right, and so kind of jumping on that, you mentioned that, you know, right now nowadays there's sort of a stigma against modern corporate architecture. However, in the book, at least there's a lot I wasn't aware of that there's quite a story behind a lot of these decisions that we all take for granted now. You know, we'll start right off you talk about the the sign for the PSFF built PSFS building. And again, you know, big corporate signs are something we all see and don't even think about whereas for this building it's quite a story and actually quite a big deal in the architectural kind of history, we'll say.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a, yeah, I really um, enjoy thinking about signs (laughs) and signs. I guess the letters being so as communication, you know, for everyone, right. There's no mistaking what letters mean to people, right. It's, it's not like trying to decipher a triangle or some geometric form. Right. Um, such a direct way of communicating. And for PSFS, it was, yeah, it's a fascinating story. Um, You know, the client actually wanted its whole name written out on top of that building, which would be Philadelphia Saving Fund Society, which is a lot of letters. (laughs) Um, And yeah, there's this really fascinating tension between the clients um, and the architects, George Howe and William Lascaz, about um, a lot of issues with the building um, as the architects were really trying to realize a modern design at a time when really there were no other modern buildings like that in Philadelphia, much less the rest of the U S. Um, so they're really trying to do something new and the client, you know, the client wasn't really, wasn't really on board throughout the process. Um, and so they had that struggle between, Oh, is the building sign going to be initials or is it going to be the whole name? Cause of course the client was worried that nobody would know what PSFS meant if the whole name wasn't written out. Um, But there's this great story about, in one of the board meetings about the building, someone remembered coming in, one of the executives coming in on the train and seeing the sign for PON um, and really kind of really perked his interest on what what that is. So the advertising really worked to have initials and that kind of sold the initials. Well, and also they did a full-scale mock-up Um, They rented a hotel room a few miles away and hoisted up the actual size letter to see how it, and of course it read much better from, so like you get all that um, radius, miles and miles of visibility for the company by having these large letters. Um, And then neon lighted letters throughout the night, after it got dark as well, really sold the company on and having the initials
0: right and speaking of selling you know as as we as you just kind of hinted at you know the clients themselves weren't kind of as sold on this and so there's an anecdote in there that uh, i believe was the architects actually put together some kind of cost savings document showing that Mm -hmm. by going with a modern design it's actually more financially beneficial and so Yes. Something most of us practicing architects nowadays are no stranger to is that, you know, we have to use money to convince people to make decisions. And so same thing. This is such a big, striking building, but they still had to be sold on it in terms of money, not design.
1: Yes. Yeah. As We all know as practicing architects, um, you got to get the, the client on board through their language or one of their languages of, of, the, of the budget and, um, but what's interesting also about the budget, well, sure. Yeah. So the other thing is, yeah, these kind of, pl- these modern spaces that, you know, don't have decoration, you know, pricey decoration, you know, that cl- the person, you know, paying for the um, project can understand is, Oh, it costs less. I don't have the decoration, but of course, architects like are excited not to have decoration because they're trying to design in the, in a modern ethos without decoration. So it's, It's a funny kind of, yeah, a way that everyone's kind of getting what they want, but for different reasons.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And so an interesting theme I (laughs) found in the book is, you know, obviously advertisement has always been around. But this kind of period, it seems like the science of advertising kind of seems to come to light a little more. And so almost Mm -hmm. each one of these case studies, there's different architectural design concepts that I don't think the average, I don't think I or anyone else would think of as being used as a tool. You know, for example, the building Mm -hmm. we're speaking of they intentionally kept it asymmetrical because an asymmetrical building turns out is very easy as an attention grabber or as a selling point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great observation. And it actually, um, I make a case in, in the book that it actually points at the Ben Franklin bridge, right, which is the major bridge designed by Paul Cray actually that connects New Jersey to Philadelphia. So it was very intentional that people, um, like back to that meeting where the executive remembered the the sign that he saw that they would coming on the train into Philadelphia, that you would see that sign. It was literally pointed at the
0: bridge right?
1: and that, you know, acknowledgement of the transportation routes and the ways that the urban scale um, is really fascinating.
0: You know, and another same thing, another theme that's kind of present throughout the book is again, maybe not a new concept, to many of us nowadays, but this uh, this potential of advertising a design with a harmonious on the design on the exterior and the interior. You know, anyone who's worked mm-hmm. in a corporate building now knows that it's not just the outside; it is the furniture as well. Whereas you presented right. that this was somewhat of a new kind of idea or process in this time period.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, and in these earlier case studies, which like PSFS and well the Johnson wax, like they're in the thirties, late twenties and thirties. Right. Um, and that division of labor, you know, where there's an architect and there's an interior designer, like that hadn't really happened yet. So the architects were also designing the interiors and also the graphics and the, uh-huh. um, furniture and the accessories. So there's this amazing in the drawings for PSFS, there's just in- incredible depth of details of like ink wells and, <laughs> Waste baskets, and you know, like every every. It get, and there's I actually there's fascinating um, correspondence where William Lascaz actually um, sent letters to the Bauhaus wanting to get furniture and accessories from the Bauhaus. But of course, we know the Bauhaus wasn't ever able to get off, you know, their business plan really off the ground. Right. Even though they were so good at sort of showing their design, the w- designs that came out of the workshops. Um, so, the, um, Lascais had to basically design all of those accessories, furniture, signage themselves. Um, there's even drawings that Lascais did of the sign. Um, mm-hmm. it was then later, like he actually, it's interesting, the letters are it, really this architect's approach to letters as sort of ge- geometric forms. Not as letter forms, you know, you hand, you give it, and then it got handed to the sign maker and then it did get tweaked a bit, but you see how he saw like the, the curves of the S's as parts of circles in right. a very architectural and geometric way, which is not how graphic designers work. So it's really fascinating that they took on, you know, from the city to the spoon, right? Um, <laughs> All of these <laughs> scales of design themselves, which today it would never be done that way, right? Um, and so it's really fascinating that it was so comprehensive.
0: I agree, and kind of you know moving on to maybe your next case study, kind of off the idea of this was kind of a shift, you know, in how the you know the interior designer worked with the architect. You know, the Johnson mm-hmm. Building. I think I think many more at least architectural students might be a little more familiar with that. Particularly mm-hmm. with, you know, some of the more eccentric stories of its architect, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so one thing though that I've never heard before, and I think it's an important thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this, I know, is the concept of Gesamtkunstwerk. Kunstwerk. And I I know I oh. MS that <laughs> up.
1: A total work of art, I'm Kunstwerk. Yes.
0: Yeah. And so I was yes. wondering if you could elaborate on that for us a little more.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting thing that I found in many of the case studies, um, particularly yeah, PSFS and the Johnson Wax Building, um, that there is this kind of totality, total worker design, throughout from the exterior to the interior to the furniture to the accessories to the signage and graphics. That it was all very complete in that way, and even early on, because you know, branding doesn't become an actual you know part of advertising until like the sixties. So right. this is early, like in the thirties where this is happening because, because of modernism, right. That, um, and of course that idea of Gesamtkunstwerk really comes out of the, ni- the 19th century, but modernism really took it on and having this idea of a whole cohesive uh, design from, yeah, the smallest detail to the largest detail was pretty much parallel with branding, right. Cause when we look at branding Today and it's like oh yeah you have to have the letterhead looks a certain way and the logo needs to look a certain way. It's right. that same idea of bringing it through all the different um, types of design and disciplines, but we're we're getting it at this early point. With someone like Frank Lloyd Wright, um, you know, <laughs> and his outsized ego. Right. Yeah, my chapter on him is is interesting. It, it the name of that chapter is called Fame. Yes, because. And this is like an early example of Star Architects and hiring mm-hmm. an architect for his or her fame. Uh, he really was desi- uh, ar- um, hired for his fame. They already had a building design by a local racing architect. Yes, <laughs> and they basically just scrapped that. Um, actually, in the aver- um, the advertising firm that um, Johnson was working with was really excited about Wright and telling him, "Oh, you got to hire this guy. He's amazing." Um, He's going to give you all this media attention. Um, So, yeah, Wright was a kind of spokesman, a spokesperson for the company, which is, you know, an early example of what we see today. Absolutely. With, you know, architects like Frank Gary and, you know, many others. Mm -hmm.
0: Right, a much more common practice now, whereas it's it's sort of presented as I won't say this is the origin of that practice, but one of the more earlier examples, mm-hmm. particularly as the case is made, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright and probably more than any other architect talked about his designs and concepts publicly, probably more than any other architect,
1: mm-hmm. not
0: just in an academic setting, you know with public interviews and mm. print, et cetera,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: And so uh, you know you'd mentioned so we were talking about this design of custom furniture. Whereas this this building, well, there's two points I wanted to talk about. The one being that the furniture is custom, but it's done so in a way with variation and modularity, where every piece is yeah. not custom. It's more of a system that, in my mind, is mm-hmm. kind of how any corporate office furniture line is built nowadays. Hmm. The yeah, uh, whether you you know, uh, and then the uh, the second point to that is obviously the focus of the book is modern architecture. And while there's plenty of proof that this is a modern building, I know when you first look at it and they even use the term streamlining, this is probably the least adherence to the modern tenants in my mind. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I guess another thing I wanted to do with this book was to sort of expand um the understanding of modernism also. Right. Because like for one thing, like with the PS, the PS of this building is often called like the first international style skyscraper in the U S which I kind of take issue with because I think so many parts of that building speak to a, a more curvilinear expressionism um, like from Eric Mendelsohn and JJP Oud, who were building buildings in Europe at the time that Hal were designing it. And I think that, you know, that the things that are not, you know, the typical international style uh, principles of modernism um, also include the streamlined um, effect that Frank Lloyd Wright was going for. And, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright was so cantankerous and he <laughs> was um, sort of he kind of was saying, well, yeah, I haven't done a streamlined building, but I'm going to do and he kind of he 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 denigrated streamline because of, of course the streamliners we know were like Raymond Lowy and these more um, like a little bit like decorators, right. There was a more like superficial approach, although, you know, a hu- huge part of design history, um, the, you know, who else am I thinking of like Ken Weber and these American designers who, you know, took on that look of modernity of speed and, you know, wheels and, right, these kinds of mm-hmm. industrial um, um, stylistic motifs, right? But he actually was, he, he wanted to do streamlining better than those designers. And this—and it was sort of his challenge to achieve that in this building. And so we see all those curves, um, especially on the exterior, um, which is really fascinating. But yeah, I mean, that's a really good point that had, this building does not adhere to the international style box the kind of boxy right like i think that's what you're referring to absolutely uh, linear qualities but i think that's what makes it uh rich too because you know he is this american modern architect whose career spanned so long you know yes from the 19th century to the you know 1959 uh that uh that there there is this kind of richer more expansive definition of modernism that we should um We should understand.
0: Absolutely. And I uh, I, want to come back to that with kind of the final chapter on material. But the next case study, almost the opposite of that, you know, the the chapter that you title Form, when we talk Mm -hmm. about, when you're talking about that building, the first thing that came to my mind is everything that's described is why the Seagrams building by Mies van der Rohe is often touted Mm -hmm. as being innovative, whereas the case is made that this building came before it and this building actually created a lot of what I've seen as innovation that that building is credited for.
1: Right. Right. And this is by this, you know, American corporately organized firm SOM. Right. And they've got this courtyard, right. That, you know, Seagram's was always credited with um, bringing that public space. Like if mm-hmm. you, if you provide public space, you could build higher. right? Um, but yeah, um, Leverhouse had that public plaza, and that came about in a really interesting way because the the client actually was the architect Charles Luckman. When he had, because of the depression, he didn't practice architecture. He started working at Pepsodent, actually, and then he was recruited by Lever Brothers for the American um, uh, president role. And so he ended up being the building client for for Lever House, and he he wanted it because that block had had was basically like a mixed use kind of block with the Uh retail on the ground floor and the apartments above. And he, he wanted it to be just Lever house. Like he wanted to sort of clean that up, you know, and just have this building about Lever brothers. So, and he even wanted that, that ground level to be um, empty, Uh, like on Pelletee, right. The whole Uh building sort of built up. So that kind of came from Charles Luckman interesting. And then of course, you know, Gordon Bunshaft is looking at Le Corbusier and, and Mies and, you know, very into, you know, the idea also of peel tea and bringing the building up off the ground. Right. Um, but really this idea of kind of this real estate idea that they wanted the real estate to be just Lever Brothers and not sort of mucked up with these random stores and they, they didn't want the rental income, um,
0: Yeah, And that's a great point, just as we talked about earlier. You talk about the story where when he presented it to a board of directors, the first thing he had to explain to them was the profits they would earn from the advertising potential of the building, not the income generation that everyone assumes with ground floor tenants.
1: Yeah, it was really fascinating um, that the head of public relations for Lever Brothers boasted that – Everyone knows it's Lieberhaus. Um, It's worth, and he actually quoted $4 million of free advertising. Right. Um, and also that they didn't need a sign. So we also see this That's shift right. from like a sign where you have letters and communicating through, you know, letters to not having a sign and having the architectural form speak for the client, for the institution. So it's a really fascinating shift that,
0: that- – yeah. Absolutely. And for you know, I think most many people are familiar with SOM and they're familiar with the work they do, you know, giant skyscrapers with glass skin. And it's <laughs> interesting to read that this was kind of their introduction into it. And you had mentioned the project came about in an interesting way, but the way that uh, SOM was even brought onto the project I thought was a, a very humorous story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, Nathaniel Owens, um, one of the founding partners um, he had been touting this little project, like a sort of spec project, the tomorrow's office building. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was basically Leverhouse without the, without the shift. You know, House has the two slabs, um, right. and the top, they're sort of shifted like 90 degrees to each other. And this, the, the spec office building was actually not twisted. And the, it was kind of like this flat slab and didn't kind of have that notch. Um, But he had been promoting it, um, and I believe it was like a – was it a New Year's Eve party (laughs) he met? Um, Because Lever – so Lever was trying to move from – they were in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the U.S. headquarters at the time. And they were trying to find – figure out if they are going to be in Chicago or New York. Um, And they had hired this guy George Fry, this real estate consultant, to sort of help them you know, find an architect to figure out which was the best location for the U.S. headquarters. And they met at um, a New York hotel, I think it was a drunken night. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just like how how things, how business happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the network and people, you know, knowing people. And he, yeah, and Nathaniel has got the job. And uh, Gordon Bunghaft is back at the office as the sort of lead designer and takes on the design. Absolutely.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so all these, you know, all these buildings we've been talking about, there's a very clear theme of, you know, they were, they, they provided branding and advertising potential for a company through its architecture. And so kind of moving into your final case study, which I found very interesting because of them all, at least in my opinion, it was the most literal idea of a building being a showcase or an example. And that is with the material of plexiglass. Mm hmm. And so, yeah, so I think. Oh, oh, oh sorry, go ahead. No, no, so, so I, was, I was hoping you could elaborate for us a little more on the you know how it did that and how that's kind of emulated now in a lot of building material companies.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know if a lot of people know, but Roman Haas, um, this sort of German slash Philadelphia company, um, did invent plexiglass. Um, I did, and know so that. they had. Yeah. So both they have, the, it's a chemical company. So they had the scientists and the labs and they pretty much invented it. Um, but they were also like marketing it. So it's an interesting, like, it, you know, it wasn't really handed off. Like they had to do both, mm-hmm. come up with the chemical innovation and, and market this product. Um, and I did want to say like, you know, I, you know, I got to look into these business archives, which was so valuable for this book Um, to see how the clients were thinking about, and they did all think about these buildings as branding and advertising for their companies. Um, And they, um, so for this headquarters in Philadelphia on Independence Mall, the really, the, 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 um, the approach was to have it be a showcase um, of plexiglass so that idea, again, of Gavans, Gassamkin's work, a uh, total work of art, it, it was, and this building was even called the Plexiglass Palace um, in the mm-hmm. news article. Um, and it did use plexiglass um, on the facade um, in these elaborate chandeliers that were custom designed by Yorki Kepish, the artist. Yes. Um, and all over the building, um, they commissioned artists to do plexiglass art um, for the building, so it really was this kind of spectacular um, yeah, employment use of plexiglass in design.
0: And I think it's another example of you had mentioned earlier of trying to look at modernism in a different light instead of a rigid set of tenets like I did before I read the book. And in mm-hmm. this example, you know, modernism is never known for accepting of new materials outside of steel glass. and Whereas here, you know, here's this, it's showcasing a material that kind of goes against the traditional modernist materialist.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and because it's not structural. Right. Um, I actually had a different chapter in here in my dissertation, which was on aluminum, but a very similar situation where they're both these kind of new manufactured materials in the 60s or late 50s, right? 60s that couldn't be, they're, they're not structural, right? Aluminum also is not structural. Mm-hmm. Plexiglass. And so it's this very limited use and you see, you know, in the archives I really saw, I wouldn't call it a struggle, but like just like a lot of really trying out, let's try this, mm-hmm. you know, like um, what kinds of things would show up? Like they, they use like the plexiglass. Um, well, it was, it was like the acrylic fibers like in fabric for fashion. And there are all kinds of things that they were trying to get the – Acrylic to to sort of stick for consumer products. Um, it's really interesting, um but yeah. But in this building, it wasn't you know, and they did want plexiglass to be used in more like everyday uh, ways. Mm-hmm. And actually, signage, so commercial signage for, like the highway, you know, those backlit signs that you see everywhere, yes, um, becomes you know their biggest selling. You know, that's their cash cow. Like that's how they really are pre- um, profit profitable as a company, but it's interesting that this, um, corporate headquarters was more this high design, um, custom design, you know, these spectacular plexiglass commissions, whereas, you know, what's really holding their business afloat are these, um, pretty generic plexiglass internally lit signs that are, you know, just, just multiplying along the, you know, highways and the landscapes of America.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, one thing I think, uh, and this is a quote from you, and that is the idea, you kind of end the book with this quote about, you know, branding is all about engaging human emotion. And the same is true of architecture. And so the connection between the two is obvious, or should be obvious. Whereas I know I personally don't think much of architecture as branding. And I think that's because besides looking at it in a corporate sense, At least a lot of architects might view, you know, most projects are kind of one-off. You deal with the client, you do their building, and then sadly, that's it. And so I thought that that was a very important theme of the book, the idea that architecture, you know, is engaging human emotion. And so the potential for branding and advertising is huge. And uh, I don't know whether you would think, I guess, in your opinion, do you think that architecture in general utilizes that to its fullest extent, or if it's something that we're lacking a little bit?
1: Um, I guess... I definitely think that there are architects out there who who do think about um, engaging the occupants and engaging human, um, you know, the, the people who come into their buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they don't see it as branding per se. Right. But but yeah, I mean, thanks for picking up on the sort of the core of argument that, that it's um, about eliciting human engagement, right? And that's what's really important about this I- idea of branding. Um, yeah. Did you want me to like, like I do think about certain, of course there's architects like Peter Zumthor whose work is all about engagement, but of course he wouldn't think about it as branding. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but it has that engagement, but it is like yeah, different ways of looking at the same kind of thing. And yeah. And in my conclusion, I think I talk about Herzog and Meuron's work. Um, Mm-hmm. And I, I bring the example of the Ricola factory um, and the imprints of the kind of plant form there. And, you know, they don't look at that project as branding, but but I see it that way because of that, that level of engagement. Interesting. Um, yeah.
0: Very interesting. And so, of course, we could keep going into much more detail about all these different buildings, but I'd, I'd hate to keep you here all day. So, one thing I'm always curious about with my guests, though, is, you know, since the book has come out, you know, what have, what has been occupying your time? What projects have you taken on? What have, what have you been working on since the book came out?
1: That's a good question. Um, I am still trying to figure that out to some extent. <laughs> um, so, the book came out, it's a British publisher. So, it did come out in the fall in Britain in October, but then it didn't come out to the U.S. in the U.S. till April, right. like this month. So, yep. there's a bit of a... a continuous promotion of the books <laughs> because of the two sort of releases. But, um, but yeah, I have been thinking about, you know, what's next. Um, and I'm going back to this larger question about media and space, like ultimately building brands came out of research, um, about how media engages people and that okay. the powerful effects of media, like signs, spectacular form, like a magical material, like plexiglass and their effects on the occupant, um, and I did just finish teaching a seminar on media and design, which was really helpful to look at with students, to read with the students, and to work on some design projects about these issues.
0: Very interesting. Well, if you uh, codify that into another book, we'll have to we'll have to meet again and speak about it.
1: Okay, great. Yeah,
0: that'd so be great. I want to thank you very much for being on the show with me today. Thanks, Brian. For everyone listening, the book is Building Brands, Corporations, and Modern Architecture. And for those listening, thank you and have a great day.
1: Thanks, Brian.